If this car drives into a group of gypsies, will there be any damage to the car? It depends on how hard you hit them and all that. It's hard, hard. to see. Yeah, hard. You might, if somebody rolls on the windshield, they could crack your windshield. How fast do I need to go to guarantee I kill him? Right, let me tell you something. With this vehicle here, probably doing 35, 40 miles an hour would do it. Great. Okay. From the University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa, welcome to Aspect Radio. I'm Corey Kraft. And I am Ben Flanagan. Today we hit the baseball diamond to decipher sabermetrics with an early look at Moneyball, travel north to recap the Toronto International Film Festival with our friend and Time Magazine editor Gilbert Cruz. But first, we hop into a muscle car with a bag full of cash, turn on some 80s synthesizer pop, and let Ryan Gosling hit the gas in Cannes Film Festival Best Director winner Nicholas Winding Refn's latest effort, Drive. If I drive for you, you give me a time and a place, I give you a five-minute window. Anything happens in that five minutes, and I'm yours, no matter what. I don't sit in while you're running it down. I don't carry a gun. I drive. So you just moved to LA? No, I've been here for a while. What do you do? I drive for movies. Is that dangerous? It's only part-time. You put this kid behind the wheel. There's nothing he can't do. Kid, I want you to meet Mr. Bernie Rose. My hands are a little dirty. So am I. My husband's coming home. Where is he? He's in prison. There's some guys that want me to do a job for him, and I'm not going to do it. What is that you got there? One of those men gave you that? What's the job? When you get your money, his debt's paid. You never go near his family again. Corey, Refn is a director with whom people are not overly familiar, but those who have seen his work, like Bronson, The Pusher Trilogy, and Valhalla Rising, tend to consider him more of a gifted visual stylist than an outright storyteller. And with Drive, Refn brings us a throwback heist character study that slinks into other genres like film noir, black comedy, and even action thriller. With method actor Gosling starring as a nameless stunt driver and mechanic by day who works as a criminal getaway driver by night, Refn uses those stylistic gifts to tell the story of a seemingly impenetrable man of very few words but of deliberate and often brutal action. He meets Irene, a young mother whose husband, Standard, is in prison. And when he comes home, he tells the driver that if he doesn't rob a pawn shop for some bad guys, they'll hurt Irene and their son. So the driver helps him out. And through some unexpected and violent twists, we'll just say that things go wrong for everybody, putting the driver in a position to protect his new friends at any cost. So, Corey, while Refn does not tone down his always apparent visual style, do you think the story takes a back seat? to the visual flourishes, or did you find yourself invested in our brooding hero, or should we say anti-hero's violent course of action? Well, Ben, I feel the need somewhat to just use this as an opportunity to say thank you to director Nicholas Winding Refn. Because he's listening. Well, if he was. If you are Nicholas Winding Refn, thank you. 
I want to thank you for making an action movie with the visual flourishes that Ben mentioned, the style that is so often lacking from Hollywood studio churned out mass product that passes for action movies these days. And I want to thank you for making sure that every single bit of this action and every single bit of this often very brutal violence does connect with the audience and does have an effect because of how much investment we have in the characters even the mysterious protagonist played by ryan gosling whose name we don't even get but we're so invested in the story and that's that's foremost for any action movie uh, and we're, we've got so much investment in these characters that when things do start going wrong it, it does really hit its audience hard this is a simple story there's no question about that but thank you Nicholas Winden Refn for telling it so, so well. This movie sort of blew me away. Yeah, there are parts of it that definitely blew me away, too. Going into it, I had my mind on a lot of other movies, films that people who had seen it had compared it to. They said that Gosling reminded them of the quiet hero Steve McQueen played in old movies, and they referenced things like Bullet or they referenced old Michael Mann movies that involved car chases and sort of the seedy underbelly of cities like Thief, right. and they referenced a film like To Live and Die in L.A. But as I was watching Drive, I was actually reminded of two other movies. Those films, again, were at the back of my mind, but the two movies that it reminded me of, first off, as we are sort of drifting into just this unbelievable urban landscape of Los Angeles at night, when you just see the city lit up the way it is. I, it's just, I haven't seen the city photographed like that. He's obviously using some sort of aerial photography like a helicopter. It reminded me of Blade Runner and the hmm. way... He just sort of established this tone and this version of Los Angeles because I think the, he shoots the city in a way that we haven't seen it shot before. And these visual elements that we've seen in past Refn movies are certainly here, but like you said, they're used completely to serve the purpose of the film. This is a movie that is something I would consider slightly experimental, very artistic, but something that will appeal to mainstream audiences. It is incredibly violent, don't get me wrong, and that might turn a lot of people off, but I'm watching it in a room full of not too many people and nobody left the theater. And this has a wide release right now, and so that kind of shocked me in the first place. But I think that Refn, while he is an artist, he is able to tell this story in a way that an action movie might unfurl. And it was effective for me. Now, the other movie that it reminded me of, honestly, was Taxi Driver. If we didn't get that narration or that window into the mind of Travis Bickle, because we don't really know anything about Ryan Gosling's character. Like you said, he's very mysterious, and we have no idea why he's doing the things he's doing at first. We don't know why he's a getaway driver. Or we don't know why he's a mechanic. He doesn't tell you anything he doesn't want you to know or want to say in the first place. He chooses his words very carefully. In some cases, he doesn't even respond to people's questions. But those are the two films that reminded me of. And honestly, I do think while this movie has some problems, I'll just say some because it doesn't have many, I think it's as innovative as those movies too in terms of of its storytelling and its visual flourishes that we know Refn for. I think this, like you said, being a wide release, it reminded me a great deal of the last two David Cronenberg movies, History of Violence and Eastern Promises, in terms of violence, but also, I mean, just in terms of the impact that it had on me, something like Boogie Nights, This, I feel like this is the emergence of somebody who's going to be a major player in Hollywood. This is Nicholas Winding Refn's breakout 
he just has the audience in the palm of his hand the whole time. It doesn't even matter that you get such sparse character revelations about Ryan Gosling's character really next to nothing. Not only is that a throwback to, I guess, the old style Hollywood, like 70s anti-hero in these car movies, but I mean, it, it, it's just captivating to watch this person we don't really know and see how he responds and see this, this burgeoning relationship, you know, something that finally does sort of crack his exterior with, with his relationship with Carrie Mulligan's character, Irene, and her young son. Because this is a man who, and this is another reason it reminded me of a Cronenberg movie this is a man who when the film starts almost seems mechanical himself as mechanical as the cars that he drives whose behavior is just almost robotic and finally that facade slips and there is some humanity and that happens unfortunately when all the stuff starts happening and things get bad yes yeah, some humanity because he still doesn't really he he never really reveals his hand throughout the movie right. i mean there are moments where you are sort of led into person the human who is ryan gosling because you said mechanical this guy's like a machine right he really is What's great about Refn is that he uses everything that he has at his disposal to their maximum capabilities. Mm -hmm. If that's the setting, props, if those are the actors, and especially here, the violence. And if anything really kind of took me out of this movie, it was the violence. And it's interesting that you said Cronenberg because that is exactly who I thought of when you see these incidents on screen. I mean, the violence is almost so grotesque that it sort of takes you out of it. I was kind of taken aback and I kind of laughed at it. And that's kind of the way I watch Cronenberg movies sometimes too. But for me, it never really hurts the movie. I think that, I mean, he might, he might could have done it in a more artful way. Because, you know, when you see Gosling's character snap the way he does, maybe mm -hmm. the violence is necessary to sort of illustrate uh, these emotions that he's feeling. And, and unfortunately, the violence is the only way he can express that. He's always just on the verge of exploding. You're just kind of waiting for him to do it throughout the movie. This movie's never boring. No, never. Ever. And never. it has very quiet moments throughout the entire thing. But even when it's quiet, what's happening on the screen, like say during the opening sequence of the movie, which is just Gosling eluding police officers who are after him during one of the heists that he's driving a car for. It's very quiet. But honestly, I was uneasy the entire time. Yeah. I was on edge. I had no idea what was going to happen or what was going to happen to his character if they were going to get caught. But one revelation that you sort of get halfway through the movie when you see Ryan Gosling's character in a diner, he's not a very good person. He's really not. I think that his intentions are good in some places in his life, especially when he runs into the Irene character and her son, Benicio. Around them, he's a good man, and he wants to be a good man because this is, as he says, the best thing that's ever happened to him. Mm -hmm. But the other elements in his life, in what he does, whether that is helping criminals escape uh, as they do their crimes, or he's committing violence himself, or he's just interacting with certain people, he's not a good person at all. Honestly, you might even rename this movie Thug, because he's hired help. He's a hired gun, in a sense, just with a car. But I don't think he's compelled to really do violence until Irene is threatened. One of his rules... That, you know, and he explicitly states it to everybody that he does a job with is that he doesn't carry a gun. He just drives. That's his job. And actually, throughout the whole movie, he never has a gun. Well, so, he has, he uses a gun okay. in the movie. Yeah, oh, he, right. Yeah, okay, okay. Yeah, a big gun. Yeah, that's right. All right. All <laughs> There's right. one moment, but he has to improvise. Right. Right. And that's he has that's, to, that's it's a, out of character for That him. is a difficult situation. 
Yeah, and he and yeah, the character right. himself. About that. He, he never really hesitates in this movie to do anything. Right. And at that moment, this movie takes an unexpected twist, like we said before. It's really the first instance of violence. I think in the movie or significant violence. Yeah, absolutely. And his character is taken aback himself and he has to sit and think, what do I do in this moment? Right. And that's when, yeah, like you said, he commits his first act of violence that we know about. I mean, he's obviously good at doing it. Right. Because we see him do it again and again and again in the movie. But I mean, I, you know, I, I kind of disagree maybe with the assessment that he's not a good guy or, I mean, I know he does, he, he does drive criminals away from jobs. That is something he moonlights doing. But I think he's just sort of morally blank. He doesn't really do anything. He's not good. He's not bad. He just, I mean, he's just machine-like. And he's only put into situations in which the people that have finally broken through to him are, are threatened. When, when that happens, he just acts. You're not really given any information to make that decision you know, based on, on Gosling's performance, but I don't, I don't know that his, you know, you could really qualify anything he does as being good or bad just because it's so unhuman in a way. It's just, it's machine-like. It's just efficient and cold and detached. Well, to me, the diner scene that I referred to yeah. earlier is one of the big parts of the movie. It's a big scene for me. Right. Because it's, a, like I said, it's a great revelation into who he is, right, and what he's capable of. Right. And the reason he's doing it is to protect himself. But at that moment, I don't think he's protecting other people, right? Because he's approached by another character who knows something about him. Yeah. And almost immediately, as a defense mechanism, in a way, he threatens that person. Right. He threatens him with violence. So to me, that tells me he is a violent person. That's not just talk. He would really do what he says he would do. And so for me, that moment right there tells me that this is a guy who, and one, one of the terms that's used in the movie, one character says, it's not this, it's just bad luck. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that Ryan Gosling's character might have had a bit of bad luck in terms of the kind of people he associates himself with, who right. he happens to associate himself with. And you could say the same thing about Carrie Mulligan's character, Irene. She's just this completely sweet and seemingly innocent character who has a great little boy, but the people she's involved with, they're low lives. Her husband is just this two-bit criminal who happens to be in prison and is going to have to commit another crime that's going to get them all in trouble. And then, while he has these heroic qualities and he's good to them, but then she gets involved with Ryan Gosling, which leads to even more violence. Right. Sorry about the noise. I was going to call the cops. I wish you would. I guess the fact that we're speaking of this character and trying to analyze his motivations and his past means that somebody did their job. Mm -hmm. uh, and Ryan Gosling, I think, and I think he pulls off this very physical, very minimalist character extraordinarily well. Especially since, I mean, you know, in any given scene, you're just sort of guessing what he's doing, what he's thinking, how he's going to react. And I thought that, I mean, that's that's terrific. And why is he ready to blow, too, is what I want to know. What's right. happened leading up to this point? Because he wears these rubber driving gloves or these leather driving gloves, and he's often gripping them. 
and you can just kind of feel the tension within himself. You yeah. Know? Even when he's not doing something violent, or even if he is, he's gripping it like he's just ready to explode on somebody and act emotionally. Right. But I think the scenes with him and Carrie Mulligan, they totally work and they give you a nice warm feeling. And I think, again, we talked about, we talked last week about Contagion where Steven Soderbergh had his fingerprints all over it. He had complete control of it. I think Refn is right there. And like you said, he's about to explode himself. I think he's a guy who has emerged as a director that we should keep our eyes on at all times. Whatever Refn does, we should pay attention yeah. to. You know, there were times when I thought, well, Carrie Mulligan's she's not really given a lot to do. She sort of serves as this damsel in distress type character who doesn't really have much to offer emotionally to the narrative, I guess. She is definitely, I guess, the, uh, the thing that gives Ryan Gosling's character a purpose. Right. But the character itself doesn't really do as much for me. I found her very resonant, if only because maybe that's just because I, I kind of adore Carrie Mulligan. But I mean, as as far as like the the plot, the object, so to speak, that needs to be protected, it's nice that you use the term damsel in distress because I think that Ryan Gosling's sort of neo-noir knight here has to protect her. I mean, yeah, that's what spurs him on. It, it's sort of the just what makes the plot go but i mean i found her really appealing particularly in those first scenes when they're getting to know one another and i mean that character pays off totally for me in her last two scenes one of which involves an elevator you know i don't want to spoil that but it's pretty exceptional in her reaction to that i mean it's sort of makes her character and then the last scene that she's in one of the last shots of the movie I don't know. I, I just found that very affecting. No, it was. It totally is. And, I mean, you can't do much better than casting someone like Carrie Mulligan, who has these incredible emotional capabilities in terms of, like, projecting emotion on screen. I mean, she can sell something with just a look. Yeah. You know, she doesn't need to say anything. She doesn't need to do much else. She can just convey those feelings on screen, and she does them perfectly and subtly, too. But what else can she give the driver character? He's giving her so much more in return than I think she's giving him. I mean, and this is the best thing that's ever happened to him, right? But she's married, and she has a kid. And I, I don't know necessarily what Ryan Gosling's character is looking for. That's never really explicitly said, I yeah. guess, on the part yeah, of no, Refn. What matters is that he's getting something. He's just getting something that's making him feel good and feel like... Feel human. Yeah, it's making him feel human when he, he obviously hasn't acted that way up to that point. I mean, there is this nice little moment where she she there's an action that she has uh, while they're driving. And this yeah. is before her husband gets out of prison that just sort of gives Ryan Gosling's character the message that you are getting this in return. But that ends suddenly for him, but he still feels the need to protect it anyway. But I mean, let's just sort of quickly talk about some of the other side characters here. I think one of the big messages this movie sort of sends, whether it wants to or not, is don't get involved with bad people and don't get involved with their money, too, because they're going to come looking for you and something bad is going to happen to one of you. And some of these bad people in this movie are Albert Brooks, who sort of gets this villainous turn. And I know that you're a big Albert Brooks fan going into this film, but it was just crazy to see this guy saying and doing the things that he does in this. Because again, this is a violent movie, and who would have thought Albert Brooks would be so good at that? He's terrifying. Yeah. I mean, and he, he basically steals the movie in his, in his few scenes. He's so good. And Albert Brooks, like as a as a comedian, is one of the one of the funniest guys. I don't know, in my opinion, to ever be a comedian. He he's just he's just hysterically funny. His films are all hysterically funny. And then in Drive, he is just one of the most menacing gangster figures 
I've seen in a long time. It's just an almost complete turn, just a complete subversion of his persona. I mean, it's terrific. Yeah, he is. He's terrifying. And Ron Perlman, too, is this Nino character who is just a criminal. That's all we really need to know about him. He's just a bad guy who Albert Brooks is involved with financially. Yeah. And, I mean, Ron Perlman can play a bad guy. We've seen it before, but, I mean... It's just nice to kind of see Ron Perlman get this kind of work, too, because he's an extremely talented guy. He does great work here. But I'm always aware of reference camera, because Mm -hmm. it's moving a lot, and it's doing a lot of unique things. He's filming shadows, right? He's filming away from the characters. He's using slow motion. His lighting is unique. But again, it all serves the purpose of the story, and he's telling it in a new way. And that, to me, is what's exciting about a new filmmaker, somebody who's going to show me something that nobody else has before. And that's a gift that I think Refn has. And that's something I think we saw in Bronson, and I'm sure probably exists in his other work, too. And as I was watching this, again, this is a movie that will help him emerge, but it reminded me a lot of Bronson. It was a very similar experience. The characters, not necessarily, but I just think the visual tone of it, the music, is Mm -hmm. very similar. I just think that he has a style that should not be compromised, and I'm sure he'll probably get offers pouring into him very soon, and hopefully he'll choose wisely what he does next, but I just really hope he applies these same stylistic elements that work so well here and contribute to the narratives of his films. Yeah, and just real quick, uh, mentioning the music, this is the second straight week in a row we've had a really great score from Cliff Martinez. His contribution to Contagion was invaluable, and now here in Drive, his synth-scored music really, really amps up the tension and the uh, the sort of aura of the 80s-style action this movie's trying to emulate. It's pretty. It's a pretty special soundtrack it sets a great tone and martinez brought it again again i said recently who knew that this would be the year of cliff martinez and i don't know if he has anything else coming up this year i look forward to it he's got to keep an eye on as well but something you said at the beginning of our review here our conversation you want to thank nicholas winding refin for bringing us a movie like drive i just sort of caught myself as i was watching this film just thinking we're really lucky to have this movie not only in tuscaloosa but just sort of in general right because it's just again i I hate to keep going back to this but it just feels fresh it feels totally fresh and it just feels like to me it made me hopeful for the rest of 2011 because i look back at the years in movies and think was this a great movie year and i think a movie year with drive is probably going to be a good year well it's it's reinvigorating you know as part of my job with the tuscaloosa news i do write a weekly dvd column and and you know watching everything you're close to everything that comes out a new release uh, you watch a lot of bad movies so it takes something like this it takes something like drive or the tree of life or, or meek's cut off or midnight in paris for you to you know step back for a moment and think you know in the end it's really a privilege almost to get to do this to get to watch these movies it it just really just replenishes the passion that you have for movies like this i mean i i can't really overstate how much of an effect that this movie had on me just in terms of of being a fan of film and seeing it used to its fullest capabilities here absolutely and i would add contagion to that list Corey. but it sounds to me like both of us consider drive one of the best of 2011 so far and we'll probably feel the same way as the year winds down sure and the film is now playing nationwide and in tuscaloosa at the cobb hollywood 16 all right coming up matt scalici and i break down billy bean's winning method with an early look at bennett miller's Moneyball. stick around it says 100% guaranteed, you moron. Mister, if you don't shut up, I'm going to kick 100% of your ass.
All right, we're back here on Aspect Radio. We're joined by Matt Scalici, editor of FilmNerds.com. How you doing, Matt? I'm doing good, Corey. How are you guys? Uh, we're great. Well, last Thursday, Matt and I had the privilege to check out an early screening of the next movie we'll be reviewing on this week's show, Moneyball, the true-life business of baseball story starring Brad Pitt. Billy Bean has tried to reinvent a system that's been working for years. It was a nice theory, just not working out. How long is Billy Bean going to last? He's proven himself right out of a job. In their minds, it's threatening the game. It's threatening the way that they do things. Hey, Daddy, do you think you'll lose your job? What? Where'd you hear that? Well, I go on the internet sometimes. Don't go on the internet. Watch TV or talk to people. You're discounting what scouts have done for 150 years? What the hell am I doing? What is happening in Oakland? It defies everything we know about baseball. Just plain crazy. If we win with this team, we'll change the game. Pitt plays Billy Bean, general manager of the Oakland Athletics, who is tasked to rebuild a struggling team with a minimal budget. But with the help of an Ivy League economics graduate played by Jonah Hill, Bean buys into a system in which trading and drafting players is measured not by traditional baseball scouting wisdom, but strict statistics, opening up a number of undervalued players to Bean and the A's and in the hopes of building a championship team. The film follows the tumultuous first season as Bean bucks the way it's always been done in baseball and comes close to losing his job in the pursuit of this method called sabermetrics. And I don't think it's too much of a spoiler to say that sabermetrics are now utilized at least partially at every major baseball club in the MLB. But Moneyball has a pedigree a step above typical inspirational sports fare. It's directed by Bennett Miller, his first film since the Academy Award winning Capote. It's written by powerhouse screenwriters Steven Zalian and Aaron Sorkin, fresh off an Oscar win for The Social Network. It was shot by Wally Feister, fresh off an Oscar win for Inception. And having perennial nominee Philip Seymour Hoffman in a supporting role can't hurt either. So Matt, I ask you this. Is Moneyball just a run-of-the-mill inspirational sports tale, or given the talent involved, did you find it a step above what could have been a fairly common story in a fairly common genre? Well, I definitely don't think it's a run-of-the-mill sports movie. I mean, I, I think there are a few moments in it that approach, you know, that kind of Disney-esque sports movie feeling, I guess. But it's really not about that at all. It's not really even about sports. And in fact, the movie spends a lot of time shirking that. I think Brad Pitt, or, or Billy Bean rather, refers to it as kind of the romantic aspect of sports because they're really, you know, the, the the whole concept here, the premise is, you know, those things aren't as important as people think they are to winning and losing in sports. Uh, at least that's their contention here. So, I mean, I, I think thematically it's not really as much like a sports movie as it is, you know, the comparisons you that you drew to the social network are pretty pretty accurate, I think. This is a movie about a bunch of guys challenging a well-established system and you know I, I don't know exactly how to classify that genre but there have been several movies about that you know it's about it's about a group of innovators you know it's about a group of inventors almost and uh, just kind of the challenges they face trying to push forward the thing that they uh, the thing that they believe in and, and the thing that they think is a good idea and I also think quality wise in terms of the writing and the and the um, cinematography and 
the acting, I think it's a step above what you typically see in a sports movie as well. So I wouldn't want to throw this into the same category as Miracle or Remember the Titans or something like that, you know? Right, right. It's not, it's not really a sports movie so much as it is a movie about the business of sports. You know, so much of it takes place in the offices uh, and really probes into how, well, how these sports teams are managed and bought and how wins are bought. But I, I think this movie, uh, frankly, is fantastic. It, it's one of my favorites of the year so far. I would put this in the same category, like you said, as The Social Network in regards not only uh, being about innovators, but being about these slightly aloof people who are sort of paving the way. Uh, Billy Bean, for all of his likability, as portrayed by Brad Pitt, is uh, somewhat distanced, a far more interesting character than you would than you would expect, obsessed with his own mistakes. And, you know, he has a pretty big chip on his shoulder throughout the movie, so he has a lot to prove throughout this. Uh, and, I mean, this is a pretty subtle probing character piece, and you really probably don't even realize it's a character piece until near the end of the movie, but but it becomes, I think, just as effective of one, well, maybe not just as effective of one, but, but an equally effective one as the social network in a lot of the same ways, probably thanks mostly in part to, to Aaron Sorkin. Uh, but Brad Pitt, I don't, I don't think, I mean, I can't think of a movie in which Brad Pitt has been, I mean, he's, he's certainly been showier, he's certainly been flashier, but he's very seldom been as believable uh, and as grounded in a role as he is here. Yeah, I really thought that watching it, you know, it it's not a it's not a big spectacular part. It's not which which really has been winning Oscars over the last few years here. So it's it's hard to know for sure how this performance is gonna is gonna end up staying in the minds of of voters. You know, when we get later in the year and there's more to to put it up against, but. To me, it, it, like you said, Corey, I, I think it, it's the most that I've enjoyed watching Brad Pitt on screen since Burn After Reading, which is a movie I didn't even like, but I, I thought Brad Pitt was really enjoyable to watch in it. And I probably, you know, I, I would say it just in terms of hit where, you know, where this falls in his, in his list of great performances, I, I, I can't immediately think of anything that I, that I think is way above this performance in Moneyball, I, I I'm inclined to say I think it, it could it could be there as a nominee for for best actor later. You know when, when we when we get to Oscar season. Yeah, it's pretty early to say, but I, I would hope so. I think I think he's that good here, and he's given a lot of great material to work with uh, with the screenplay based off Michael Lewis's uh, true story account of of this season and of Billy Bean, uh, you know, trying trying this system. Pitt is supported here, of course, by by Philip Seymour Hoffman as the coach of the team, and also uh, Jonah Hill, who I mentioned earlier as the uh, Ivy League grad who uh, who sort of brings this to Pitt's attention. Um, Jonah Hill is not necessarily the first person you would expect to hear to be cast in a movie like this. How what, how did you think he fared? I, I really like Jonah Hill, and the the closest thing I can think of that he's done to this is is Cyrus. Uh, which again, it's a is not a movie that I particularly love, but it showed that Jonah Hill had the capacity to do more than just play the fat a hole character that he had sort of established himself in. And um, I think he's really likable here. He's he's uh, 
he's definitely mild mannered and he's he's the you know he's a character that you root for because he's he's not in this for anything other than just wanting to succeed you know he just wants to be good at something and he's really just kind of a sidekick character and he's he's happy to play that role and i think i think really we get most of the the movie's good laughs you know jonah hill is involved in for sure hi mr shot it's uh, Peter Brand. I apologize for putting you on hold earlier. Billy asked me to call you back. He's on another line. Tell me one, $225,000 for Rincon. Billy says he needs $225,000 for Ricardo Rincon. Please. Yes, I, I added the please at the end. Uh, okay, let me... T- hold on one second, please. Tell him I'll pay for him. But when I... I sell him back for twice amount next year. I keep the money. Okay, so Billy says he'll pay for Rincon himself, but when he sells him for more money next year, he's keeping the profit. Okay, thank you very much. We'll call you back. Thank you. Come on! Come on! Well, Moneyball had a somewhat troubled uh, pre-production history. Steven Soderbergh uh, was originally attached to direct this movie, uh, and it was sort of put on the shelf, stopped right before production was set to begin. But Brad Pitt uh, got it started again now with Bennett Miller as a replacement director. They sort of tweaked the concept. Aaron Sorkin did some rewrites. You know, Soderbergh's version sounded like a pseudo, like documentary. He wanted to do mix in real interviews with the players involved, with them playing themselves in, in the movie version of the story. And it sounded a little out there. There's no question that Bennett Miller takes a slightly more conventional approach. But, you know, this is his first movie since Capote. And Capote, at least for me, is a really, really special movie and showed a lot of promise from this director. How do you think Bennett Miller did here? And, you know, what do you think about the Soderbergh version that we will never see? It's hard for me to think about what Soderbergh would have done that would have particularly improved the way the story plays out, because this movie is really, it's a straight narrative. And I, I think if you tried to get a lot more, I think if you, I think if you did a lot more to play around with the, uh, you know, the, the sort of linear path of the story here, it, it, it really could have taken away a little bit from, you know, what they're building towards, which is ultimately this, this, um, you know, I guess this, this winning streak and then this ultimate realization of where their money ball approach is going to take them and where it can't take them. You know, I think, I think Bennett Miller played it pretty straight and I think it works because I think this is a story that is, that, that has to reveal itself over the course of a season. And I think if you, if you try, you know, if you gave people any details about how it all ends up, before before they before before the time came if i'm making sense here i think it would spoil things a little bit you know because the some some of the fun of this is those of us who aren't baseball nuts don't really know how well this approach ends up doing or not and uh that that's a that's a big part of the fun of this movie is you know it's not easy to predict where this thing is going and so i, I you know I, I think the approach they took ultimately screenplay wise and just, just the way Bennett Miller plays it, I, I think it works for this kind of movie. And you know, I, I don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm certainly a fan of Soderbergh, but I'm, I, I don't, I don't know that I would have wanted any more sort of analysis on the side. I don't, I don't think it was necessary, really. Well, just to wrap up real quick, Matt, uh, how does this stack up for you as far as uh, the movies of 2011 so far? I like it a lot. I mean, this is one of those. Th- this movie has a couple of the 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 things that are sort of. 
uh, I guess, little keywords that hit me uh, of of these sort of Oscar movies that that we end up seeing at the end of the year. One of those things is it's got a lot of everybody's good in it, not just the big stars. There's there's a lot of little small performances that are really fun. We didn't really mention Robin Wright or Chris Pratt, who both are really good in this. There's even a great cameo of who who plays Robin Wright's second husband, and I won't I won't say who it is. I'll leave that as a surprise for you guys, but. It's really fun. You know, just just all the little details of the movie are 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 done right. All the small performances are great. And I think that's a thing that you see usually in really well done Oscar caliber movies. And I think this this movie also Corey, this movie played really well with the crowd you and I saw it with and that was a mixed crowd. That was a little bit of everybody in there. Yeah. Um, including people, the kind of people who will sit next to you and talk through the whole movie. But everybody liked it. The, there were moments where the crowd actually cheered audibly at the movie. So, I mean, I, I think this is a, a bit, it's brainy, but it's a crowd pleaser. I wouldn't be surprised if this one ends up being a bigger hit than maybe people are expecting. And uh, and I think it's going to need that. It's going to need to be a, a financial success to still be hanging around in Oscar season. Well, for my money, I, I certainly hope it is because it's a movie I enjoyed a great deal. And I'm looking forward to seeing it again when it opens uh, in theaters nationwide and in Tuscaloosa on Friday. Thanks a lot for joining us for this, Matt. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Corey. Well, when we come back, Time Magazine editor Gilbert Cruz tells us about his trip to the Toronto International Film Festival. Stay tuned. Kellner delivers. Here's a swing and a high fly ball to center field. Hayes under it. Hey, makes a basket catch, Willie Mays style. And the side is retired. Woo-hoo. All right, well, look out there. Hey, nice catch, Hayes. Don't ever do it again. All right, let's go. Let's get it going. We're back here on Aspect Radio with Corey Kraft and our producer, Andrew Richardson. I'm Ben Flanagan. So the Toronto International Film Festival ended last weekend, and our friend and former Tuscaloosa News reporter Gilbert Cruz covered it for his gig as an editor at Time Magazine. I spoke with Gilbert recently about the films he saw and what it was like covering the festival for the first time. Okay, we're here with Gilbert Cruz, who is all the way up in New York. He's joining us via Skype. And Gilbert... You work for Time Magazine. You've been there for a few years now, and uh, we read your stuff a lot. We're fans of your work. Uh, You do a fantastic job. It's always great to see your byline in there. Just somebody who was once in Tuscaloosa, and we're proud to see it, and somebody who was uh, affiliated with the Tuscaloosa News for a little while, way back. But what we're extremely jealous of is that you recently covered, on assignment, the Toronto International Film Festival, and I know that this was your first time doing that. I don't know if you've covered other film festivals before. But just first off, before we get into what films you saw, and I know you saw a lot of the, the good stuff in the movies that people were talking about, but just sort of tell us about how you got the assignment and what your assignment was specifically. So, um, you know, I've been in town for four years. This was my first major film festival. You know, living in New York, I've been to Tribeca a couple times. But even though they've been doing it for ten years... Tribeca hasn't really been able to, to break through and become a major film festival. And Toronto, for the past few years, has been the truly the fest where uh, a lot of Best Picture nominees have come out of um, The King's Speech last year, Slumdog Millionaire, and movies like that. So, you know, very shortly I'm due to become the uh, online arts editor uh, of Time.com in about a month, actually, which is something I'm very excited for. So I basically assigned myself to go to Toronto and see as many movies as I could, as many big movies as I could, because I knew I'd be behind a desk 
for the next six months and I wouldn't be able to get out and uh, and see all the big awards contenders and all the movies that people were going to be talking about. So I went up there from a Thursday to a Sunday and I tried to fit in as many as I could and I only wish I could have seen more. It was uh, it was overwhelming, but it was uh, it was a great time. And you know, any cinephile, any any body who's obsessed with films to try to make it to at least one major film festival in their life it's it's like um you know it's like going to mecca you should do it at least once well and just to sort of digress here from the toronto film festival you talk about being a cinephile and i know that you have been for several years after reading some of your stuff even while in tuscaloosa and then i go on time.com and i see some of the video pieces that you're able to do these q a's with celebrities and filmmakers including people like robert redford and darren aronofsky i looked at a recent edition of time magazine and on the very last page you had a conversation with guillermo del toro i mean just sort of talk about the people that you're able to meet through this job i mean i know that you have to be a fan of some of these people but you actually get to sit down with those filmmakers and and other people like aziz ansari i saw that it was hilarious just talk about i mean when you're sitting across from these people what's going through your head as a fan of their work before working at Time Magazine, I worked at uh, Entertainment Weekly for three years, which is a magazine I've been reading since I was a child, since I was a teenager, and which is a magazine, unlike Time, that's totally devoted to entertainment. So when you work at EW, your job is to consume as much entertainment as possible. And, and luckily, I was able to get out all the nerves that one generally has with meeting famous people. You know, in the first three years of my career in journalism, I remember whenever I got on the phone with someone famous, whenever I met, you know, a, a big director or a big star in person, I would I would just be completely, completely frightened, sweating under my arms, on my forehead, you know, sort of stumbling over my words. I had a very, very awful interview with Tommy Lee Jones, who's just a very mean person generally. He has a reputation for being a mean interview. But once I got to time, I eventually realized that it's you know, it's sort of a sort of a business transaction. Like they're you know, they're trying to sell their film. You're trying to get an interview to fill pages in the magazine or to, to take up space on the website. And uh, if you do it right, if you prepare and if you're you know, respectful where you need to be and maybe a little disrespectful where you need to be. You know, it can come close to approximating a conversation. It's not always possible. I interviewed um, Shakira once. I mean, you know, some people are just terrible. I interviewed Shakira once and, you know, she showed up an hour late and she kept complaining about where the lights were and how the shadows were being cast on her face. And, you know, as soon as she walked in the room, you could tell that there was going to be a problem, that there was nothing was going to make her happy. But then I interviewed Robert Redford in Chicago for his movie The Conspirator, and I was incredibly surprised at how someone who has been a major movie star for so long, for decades, for twice as long as I've been alive perhaps, you know, was just ready to talk, was just ready to sit down and try to be as real as possible, given the fact that he's probably been asked questions that he's been asked several times before. So it all depends on the person, and you can usually get the, usually tell the vibe, usually tell what the interview is going to be like within the first two minutes. Well, I definitely encourage our listeners to go on time.com and sort of seek out the interviews that you've done recently. Like I said, I mean, you talked to guys like Darren Aronofsky, I think an early one that you did was with Simon Pegg, if I'm not mistaken, so you've had... You've had a lot of interesting conversations there for sure, and you've done a very fantastic job. But just kind of getting back to the Toronto International Film Festival here, like you said, two out of the 
three last few best pictures or Oscar winners to have come from the Toronto Film Festival. You mentioned Slumdog Millionaire and The King's Speech. This film festival has just turned into this buzz machine or this launch pad for these films that are trying to gain momentum heading into the awards season. And when you have films that eventually win best picture, that's just going to encourage studios and distributors and filmmakers to bring those films to this festival so they can gain that sort of word of mouth. At this festival, you saw a lot of the movies that are already starting to get this word of mouth, but which ones do you think this year specifically are being talked about that way, and which ones do you think are going to wind up there at the finish line come Oscar season? I, I can't say I necessarily liked all of the movies that, that I think are, are getting awards buzz, but I can tell you that Moneyball, the Bennett Miller movie, Bennett Miller directed Capote, uh, I believe this might be his first movie since, it stars Brad Pitt, Jonah Hill's in it, Aaron Sorkin co-wrote the screenplay, uh, it comes out in the U.S. in a couple of weeks, that's definitely getting at least actor buzz for Brad Pitt. The Ides of March which is directed by George Clooney and which stars Ryan Gosling. Sort of seems like a, a shoe-in for an award or two, given the fact that, you know, George Clooney is as, as big a, a movie star as Hollywood has these days. And uh, Good Night and Good Luck was pretty, at least no, nomination-wise, well-received at the Oscars. There's a gentleman named Steve Pond, who is uh, a film writer who writes for The Rap. And he, I believe he's predicted the last few big picture, uh, best picture winners coming out of Toronto, which I don't know if it's luck or what. Uh, so when he made his prediction this year, people were paying attention. And he predicted that the Alexander Payne movie, The Descendants, which stars George Looney, is going to be the one to take best picture this year. Alex? Dad? <laughs> What's up, Dad? <laughs> What's happening? You need to come home and see your mom. I'm the backup parent, the understudy. I thought you were supposed to be getting your act together. I've been doing really well, actually. Nobody ever seems to notice that. And with Elizabeth, my wife, in the hospital, my daughters are testing me. Look who's here. Get out of my underwear, you freak. Oh, okay. Don't Back inside now. Real good job you're doing. We have to go through this thing together, you and Scotty and me. Dad, this is Sid. He's going to be with me. I'll be a lot more civil with him around. Sup, bro? Don't ever do that to me again. I have to go around and tell people what's happening, family and a few close friends. I don't want to talk about mom with anyone. Look, whatever you two fought about, you have to drop it. Grow up. You really don't have a clue, do you? Dad, mom was cheating on you. Alexander Payne's first movie since Sideways, which came out seven years ago. And it's probably one of the movies I like the most. It's um, unlike Sideways and About Schmidt, it, it's not necessarily condescending or mean towards its characters. It has a warmth about it that you wouldn't necessarily expect from Alexander Payne while having that black comedy that you've come to expect from his work. And George Clooney incredibly does emotional very well. It's a, it's a movie about a gentleman played by George Clooney whose wife is in a coma. She has a boating accident, and she's been asked in her will to be taken off life support. So he has to go around, find his kids that he hasn't really hung out with uh, very much. He has to go around to friends and family and tell 
all of them that, you know, that his wife is going to die and that they need to go say goodbye to her. And it's a very moving, very emotional performance from George Clooney. And I, I think it's definitely going to do well at the Oscars this year. Well, and you tweeted recently after you saw The Descendants that I think you might have even said that this is your favorite Alexander Payne movie. And I took issue with something else you said about Payne. Just in, you made a reference that you weren't a big fan of the rest of his work and that you didn't like the way he treated his characters sometimes, and you said that this is warmer than his previous efforts. I really thought that Sideways, and especially the final moment of About Schmidt, th those two movies were extremely warm. It took some time getting to those moments, I guess, but what are some of the issues, I guess, that you have with Alexander Payne's work? You know, in the past few days, you're not the, per the, the first person to tell me that. People <laughs> have cited the last scene in, in About Schmidt and, and Sideways, and, and everyone is definitely right about that last scene is about and about Schmidt is is wonderful, but I just you know I remember thinking at the time when I saw it that at least the the first half of the movie he just treated his character so meanly, and when I say that you know I think of someone like uh, Todd Solondz, who I'm not comparing Alexander Payne to Todd Solondz because <laughs> Todd Solondz is someone who has in my view absolutely no respect for his characters. Uh, he had a movie at Toronto called Dark Horse where once again he just sort of sets up these characters to go through the worst possible thing they can go through in their, not, in their life. Alexander Payne is not like that, but, but I, I do remember even Sideways, which is a, a very, very funny movie, you know, he really puts his characters through the ringer in a way that doesn't necessarily indicate to me, at least, that he likes them. It, it just seems like he's sort of setting up these situations and letting the dominoes fall, whereas in The Descendants, it's a very complex movie about how you can sort of love someone and hate someone at the same time you're grieving for a person that you don't necessarily like but at the same time you are absolutely in love with them it, it, it addressed family and love and grief uh, in a way that I just hadn't seen in his movies before I think it does things that he's been building on for his entire career so I don't uh, think that He's a terrible filmmaker or a terrible writer. Uh, both About Schmidt and Sideways are, are extremely good movies. I just thought that in comparison to the other two, this was something that really hit me in my heart more than the other two had. Fair enough, Gilbert. <laughs> Moving on, you saw several movies at this thing, and again, these are buzzed about movies that a, a lot of people are talking about. Corey and I have a great interest in several of them. Just talk a little bit about some of the movies that you enjoyed, aside from The Descendants, more than the others at the festival first movie I saw at the festival, for the press, they start the screenings at 9 o'clock in the morning, uh, which is sometimes a rough time to see a movie. Uh, and the first movie I saw at the festival Thursday morning was um, the new Lars von Trier movie, Melancholia, which stars Kirsten Dunst and Charlotte Gainsbourg. And it's about a woman who gets married. It's a movie that's one of the longest wedding scenes I've ever seen. And at the same time, there's a giant planet hurtling towards Earth that may or may not hit our planet and destroy everyone on it. And it, it stuck with me for a very long time. It was, you know, I've seen a lot of Lars von Trier, Dancer in the Dark, Antichrist. And this one, I don't know if it's just the topic matter that you're dealing with the potential apocalypse. It just rocked me. It is a beautiful movie. The first 15 minutes, he has this incredible slow motion montage that sort of, it's this very dreamlike sequence with this soaring classical music. It, it, it sort of seemed like uh, the antidote to Tree of Life. So Tree of Life has that amazing scene of the creation of the universe. It lasts about 15, 20 minutes. Uh, and it's set to, again, amazing classical music. And this is, this is the opposite of that. This is the world is ending and there is crazy stuff going on. 
and it was beautiful. And then he sort of reprises that at the end, and it's 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 a moving film, which is weird to say for for Lars von Trier, who's known as a provocateur and someone who's more interested in sort of you know angering people or shocking people than moving them. Kirsten Dunst is incredible. Charlotte Gainsbourg is amazing, and randomly. Kiefer Sutherland, who I haven't seen in a movie in a long time, I can only think of him as Jack Bauer. He's in this movie quite a lot, and he's pretty great. Everybody, thank you for being so patient. We're just having a little issue with the wedding dress. She'll be right down. Those bitches have locked themselves in their bedrooms, and now they're taking a bath. Is everybody in your family start raving mad? <laughs> this is embarrassing. We should have put showers in the guest way. I've said it a hundred times. For f- sakes, if people want to linger in a bath, stay at home. Here, we offer you an 18 hole golf course. Where else are they going to get there? Nowhere. Unbelievable. That's it, she's out. What, Justine? Your mother. And that movie really rocked me. It was, just, it was a good movie to see at the beginning, but perhaps made every movie after that seem seem a little less than ideal. So I like that. I like um, Take Shelter, which is uh, a movie starring Michael Shannon, who was in Revolutionary Road. He's uh, on Boardwalk Empire, I believe, as the, the FBI agent or one of the government agents. And it, it shares a theme with melancholy. It's a movie about a, a blue-collar Ohio worker who starts having visions of the apocalypse. And, uh, and how that affects him and how that affects his, his family. His wife is played by Jessica Chastain, who is also in The Tree of Life, who's in The Debt. She was in The Help. She's seemingly in every Yeah, she's in everything these years. days. Yeah. But, uh, you know, the movie's really about, about Michael Shannon. I mean, the camera just lingers on his face for so much of that movie, and it is... He is incredible. I mean, I hate making predictions, but if he doesn't at least get considered for a Best Actor nomination, I would be extremely surprised. I believe he got nominated for a supporting actor for Revolutionary Road, and this just this just blows that performance out of the water. I mean, the entire movie is him. He goes, he runs the gamut of emotions. He's he's a man, sort of a, a masculine blue collar worker who thinks he's going crazy, and he starts to get help, and you can see sort of the shame on his face when he has to go to therapy and confusion and fear and anger. He's I mean, it's it's a, it's an acting masterclass. He's just fantastic in it. So, Take Shelter, which I highly recommend, and Drive. It's the other uh, Ryan Gosling movie. was uh, was pretty fun. I'm not going to go. Hosanna's have been sung for this movie, which premiered at Cannes and won a director award for Nicholas Winding Refn, who's the guy who directed Bronson. He directed the Pusher trilogy, and the movie is just is just great fun. And then the second half just gets incredibly bloody, but in a fun noir B-movie way. It's very fun. Albert Brooks plays uh, against type, although, you know, in Out of Sight he played played sort of a, a criminal. In this movie, he's, he's just a... At some point, he becomes a very vicious man, and it's, it's weird to see Albert Brooks, this comedian, do so many things with knives. So that was fun. And then the last movie I want to say I really enjoyed, and I'm embarrassed to say this, because I don't actually know if it's any good or not, but I'm going to tell you that I enjoyed it, was the Roland Emmerich movie Anonymous. Really? Do you know about this movie? Yes, I do. I've seen uh, the same trailer they've been showing for the past several months, but uh, I can't say it looks appealing, but I'm interested to know what you thought about it. I, I have, I'm interested to hear a positive take on it. It's a terrible trailer. It is a terrible trailer. There are times in my life when 
I mean, it's, it's my job to watch these things, but sometimes trailers just ruin movies for you, and, and Anonymous is one example. So Roland Emmerich is a director who is known for directing disaster films. He directed Stargate, Independence Day, Godzilla, The Day After Tomorrow, uh, and this has been a passion project of his for, for quite a while. He's been trying to make this movie for a while. It's a movie that presupposes that Shakespeare did not actually write his plays. It's a, it's a costume drama. It stars uh, Reese Ifens, I think that's how you say his name, who's going to play uh, one of the villains in the upcoming Spider-Man movie. So he plays this royal, this noble, who's actually the true writers of all the plays that we that we know as Shakespeare's today. Uh, Julie Richardson plays a young Queen Elizabeth, and Vanessa Redgrave, Julie Richardson's grandmother, I think, plays her uh, Queen Elizabeth as an older woman, which is sort of an incredible trick of casting. And they're both fantastic in it. Why do I like the movie? It's melodramatic. There are these framing devices that don't really work. I think my expectations may have been very low, but it is a saucy, melodramatic costume drama that is just really fun. It doesn't try to be more than it is. The guy who plays Shakespeare plays him as a complete buffoon, which is, I mean, he's hes very, very funny in this movie. And it's its all palace intrigue and people sleep with other people they probably shouldn't have been sleeping with. I'm not saying it rises to the heights of anything. I'm not saying that it's a great movie, but I had a very, very good time watching it. Uh, and again, I don't know if it's because my expectations were completely nil, but I think one of the only reasons that, that it'll get reviews bad reviews is because you expect Roland Emmerich to do a crappy movie. So people will go in seeing that. But I was pleasantly surprised. We all know William Shakespeare, the most famous author of all time, writer of 37 plays, 154 sonnets, several epic poems, and why we are here today. But what if I told you Shakespeare never wrote a single word? Again, I, I don't I don't know if it's good. I'm sort of embarrassed to say that I liked it, but I really did. <laughs> well, it's out there now, Gilbert, so you're going to have to live with it and when it comes out, too. And you're going to have to go on time.com and tell people this. You can't That's just, fine. I'm, you can't I'm just stop here. <laughs> okay. Well, quickly, talk about some of the disappointments of the festival, some of the things that you might have had high expectations for, but they didn't manage to deliver. Well, Fernando Moraes has a new movie out called 360. It has an international cast, Anthony Hopkins, Jude Law, and it's it's one of those movies that cuts between people and locations all over the world and sort of talks about the interconnectedness of people these days. And there are a lot of scenes that take place in transit in airports and train stations. And those movies can be great, but when you cut between characters before the audience has had a chance to connect with them in any way, it's doomed to fail from the beginning. Uh, you have all these people on screen that you know and these stories that you think you're supposed to really connect with, but it fell flat. And it was very weird because, again, this was my first big film festival, and 360 screened after The Descendants. And, you know, the only... Descendants had screened at the Telluride Film Festival a couple days before, but no one had really seen it. So there was a long line of film critics to see The Descendants. It was an hour late because of some digital delivery problem. But everyone stayed for The Descendants, watched it. It was an hour late. 360 started after, so 360 was also an hour late. So I have no idea if all of the people that were leaving throughout the movie were leaving because they did not like the movie, mm. or if because they had other screenings to go to which often happens at film festivals. You know, you're in a movie, you have to go see something else because you told your editor you would, so you sort of <laughs> leave halfway through. But there were steady walkouts from about half an hour in, 
And about 10 minutes before the end of the movie, there was just a mass exodus to the point where the audience was sort of chuckling at how many people were leaving. It didn't connect with anyone. There were a couple mixed reviews. I think Variety may have liked it and The Hollywood Reporter didn't or vice versa. But that was a bust. And there was another movie (laughs) that was incredibly weird, the Francis Ford Coppola movie, which is called Twix. So Francis Ford Coppola, in the past couple years, he's made a couple of low-budget movies, personal low-budget movies. One of them was called Youth Without Youth. One of them is called Tetro. And this one is a gothic horror movie starring Val Kilmer, a quite rotund Val Kilmer. Uh, looks, he looks pretty big these days. He looks um, like Marlon Brando in Apocalypse Now. Oh, no. And, you know, Val Kilmer plays sort of a third-rate Stephen King, I believe is what they call him in the movie. He's a, a writer of really crappy horror novels who goes to this small town, this oddball small town where weird things start happening and he starts having crazy dreams and there are vampires and witches and a serial killer and part of it is in 3D and they give you 3D glasses at the beginning and there are these two very cheesy moments when you know you have to put the 3D glasses on because you see a huge pair of 3D glasses on the screen coming toward the camera and you put them on and 3D sort of visuals are underwhelming and then you have to take them off. (laughs) But I don't think anyone knows what Francis Ford Coppola is doing these days. He has trouble finding major financing for his films which is why he's been making these small movies. I believe a good part of Twix, his new one, was filmed in the forests outside of his huge vineyard in Northern California where he's lived for decades. And he got people who want to work with Francis Ford Coppola to to make this movie. But it's very weird. It's, uh, It's a story that doesn't really go anywhere. People went because you're sort of obliged as a film lover to see a Francis, the new Francis Ford Coppola movie. But I can't imagine that's going to connect with audiences anywhere it's it's going to be a small release and uh and it won't it won't be out for very long so that's disappointing i think francis ford coppola the old guys kind of still have some juice in him but i don't know gilbert as we wind down here just sort of talk a little bit about again the the sort of experience of the festival as a critic and the choices that you've got to make sort of on the go and which films you choose to see and how you choose to see them. I'm sure you're assigned to see several of them, but just talk about sort of juggling that schedule and the challenges it presents to you and how you make those decisions. At least at the Toronto Film Festival, there's, um, you know, there, there are screenings for uh, press and industry, uh, so people in the business and then people who are with newspapers and magazines, and those start at 9 o'clock in the morning. And then there are the public screenings, which, you know, if you get a ticket, you can go. It's open to the public. So you want to go to as many films as possible. Hypothetically, it's, it's possible if you time everything correctly to go to maybe five movies a day. I think that might be the maximum. Maybe six if you go to a midnight screening. You know, but when I go there, as someone who works for Time Magazine, I'm trying to see the, the biggest movies, the ones that, um, that based on my gut or based on conversations with others, I think will will be either critical hits or box office hits, things that are going to be award contenders. So you make this incredibly detailed schedule before you go where you list every day what movie you're going to see. And then you actually go to the festival and it all goes to hell. And you end up seeing 60% of the movies you want to see because some things start late. You know, some publicist dangles an interview with a filmmaker before you and they can only talk to you when another movie is screening. So very quickly you find that the best laid plans of every film critic, every film reporter quickly go out the window. But you just, 
you have to roll with it. The first day I went there, I was completely stressed. I, I was saying to myself, I have to stick to the plan. This is my schedule, and I need to see these movies in this order. And if I don't see them in this order, it's going to mess up every single thing that I've planned in the days afterwards. And, uh, and I realized that it's just impossible. Like, you go and you see what you can see, and if you can't see it, then go see something else, because that's what you're there for. You're there to go see movies, so just try to cram in as many as you can. I'm curious, then, because you say people dangle interviews in front of you, and I didn't know if you actually caught any Q&As while you were there with any filmmakers or actors, or if you managed to interview anybody, and if somebody dangled that in front of you when a film was playing at the same time, did you choose the film over the interview? In most cases, I did. This was sort of a last-minute trip for me, so if I was doing this right, I would have sort of contacted the big studios well in advance to say, okay, Moneyball is going to be there. I know Brad Pitt's going to be there. I'd like to try to do something with Brad Pitt. But by the time I got my act together, uh, you know, he was completely booked for all the time there. So, you know, I got sort of a lot of documentary filmmakers dangled in front of me. Uh, Alex Gibney, who directed Taxi to the Dark Side, and Client 9, the L.A. Spitzer movie. He had a movie up there. I just couldn't, I just couldn't do it because there's another movie, I can't recall which, that I really want to see. But someone I did talk to, who I interviewed, and the interview which I have not yet transcribed, was uh, Werner Herzog. I saw his movie, Into the Abyss, which was a documentary about a, a Texas triple homicide and the man that is on death row for that homicide. So, you know, it's a movie about sort of the American death penalty, but also about the victims of this crime and the ins and outs of the crime. It premiered at the same time as the big opening night premiere, which was a documentary about U2 called From the Sky Down. It was the first time a music documentary has ever opened the Toronto Film Festival. And it was directed by the guy that directed uh, An Inconvenient Truth and Waiting for Superman. But I chose to see the Werner Herzog because I've watched a bunch of his documentaries in, in the past year. And then I interviewed him, and he was the only interview I did. He's pretty, he's pretty amazing. There's something sort of I don't know if it's his accent, but there's something mystical and wise about Werner Herzog. No matter what he says, it just sounds like he's telling you something really deep. So that was the only interview I did, and, and you know, it was enough for me for this first time. I know if I ever go back, I'm going to do the festival better. I'll be better prepared. I'll be a pro. <laughs> I'm sure anyone would be overwhelmed by a conversation with Werner Herzog, the way that guy talks, if you've seen any of his movies. That's that's fantastic. Well, last question, Gilbert. If you've got the opportunity again to go back, would you? Oh, definitely, definitely. I mean, um, like I said, it's completely overwhelming. Nobody gets much sleep when they're there. If after all the movies are done, people are usually going out to film parties and uh, staying up very late and drinking a little too much and then waking up too early the next morning to go catch more movies. So I'm still exhausted four days later from the Toronto Film Festival. But despite the fact that it may have given me a cold and that I'm completely, completely sleep deprived, I would go back in an instant. Okay, well, we appreciate the time and the recap, Gilbert. Remind people of where they can find your work. They can go to, uh, very simply, time.com. And I'm happy that you invited me on your show, so thanks for uh, thanks for talking. Absolutely, and congratulations on the job, and we look forward to your future work. So take care, Gilbert. Thanks again. Sure thing. Talk to you soon. Our thanks again to Gilbert for sharing that experience with us. Sounds like we have plenty to look forward to this fall. Now, Corey, before we close out, what's new on DVD? Well, this is a pretty big release week. One of my favorite films of 2011 so far, Kelly Reichert's Meek's Cutoff, is now on Blu-ray and DVD. It's a uh, pioneer story about a group of covered wagons heading towards Oregon. They take a wrong turn somewhere, and 
whole lot of character drama plays out between some of the settlers, including uh, one of the wives, played by Michelle Williams, and their guide, played by Bruce Greenwood, in some excellent performances. This is a really special movie. I also uh, highly recommend uh, Hesher, an indie comedy drama starring Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Rain Wilson, and Natalie Portman, in which Gordon-Levitt sort of plays against type as a hell-raising metalhead who uh, sort of occupies the home of a uh, grieving father played by Rain Wilson and his young son who just lost uh, who's just lost his mother. It's a really interesting, really bizarre movie that I, I really enjoyed. Also on Blu-ray and DVD, the Marvel Studios blockbuster Thor. You haven't seen this, have you? Not yet. I'll probably pick it up at the Redbox soon. Yeah. It gets better. You know, I'm not really a fan of this movie. I think it's kinda kinda silly kind of overblown Kenneth Branagh style doesn't really work here and it feels like a like a feature length previously on Thor to set up the Avengers but you know the Avengers looks pretty sweet so who am I to say anything about Thor I mean it's pretty cool it is what it is I don't know <laughs> uh, it's a big release week so also out a documentary I enjoyed quite a bit Conan O'Brien can't stop a uh, documentary following Conan on his legally prohibited from appearing on television live tour in between uh, when he was removed from The Tonight Show and his new TBS talk show. It's a really fascinating behind-the-scenes look at the man and what he does. Really humanizes him, and I think it's a must-see for anybody who's a fan. Oh, I'm probably forgetting something, but of course the big release this week, I think we all know what that is, that's Star Wars, The Complete Saga on Blu-ray. I have conflicted feelings about this, but I did purchase it nevertheless and somehow between football this weekend phil owen and myself made our way through the prequels mm. with the uh you bought the prequels i bought the complete, the complete saga. saga yeah you got to you gotta get the you gotta get the no bonus you don't features. you don't have yeah, to you do you, you do. really don't to get the bonus features you do you do have to and i wanted those i wanted those deleted scenes for the for the original trilogy we made our way through the prequels i can say this they've never looked better in home entertainment but I'm sure Wing Commander looks good on Blu-ray, Corey. But that doesn't necessarily mean we have Wing Commander. You're bringing, you're bringing out the Wing Commander comparison. I think that they're probably about as good as each other. But oh, I boy. also will soon be the proud owner, or maybe not so proud owner, of the original trilogy on Blu-ray. My wife pre-ordered it for me oh, nice. uh, way back, or I can't remember exactly when, but she pre-ordered it for me uh, without knowing the changes that had been made, and I didn't know the changes that had been made either. And I knew that we were going to get the special edition version of that too right yeah. and that's fine with me because i think you get 90 percent of what was originally intended with the star wars trilogy and just to see those on blu-ray is going to be incredible well i've sampled the original trilogy discs i haven't watched them in full all i can say is they've never looked better there's incredible detail but all the stuff that annoys you is still going to annoy you i, I won't watch the prequels on blu-ray so that won't annoy me but does that do it for the week i think so i'm sure i'm forgetting something it was a very big week very good week a lot of movies that you should check out well, and on our drive, I guess we can recommend those movies we mentioned before, like Bullet, like To Live and Die in L.A., and Thief, and things like that. Thief is awesome. One also, too, that my dad told me about when he heard about Drive was this movie, The Driver, uh -huh. starring Ryan O'Neill and Bruce Dern, just this 1978 sort of gritty crime thriller, which looks pretty interesting. I watched the trailer on Netflix the other night. It looks kind of cheesy, too, but the plot of the film is not unlike Drive, so I'm sure Refn is very aware of this movie, but but it might be worth checking out. It's available on Netflix. But now playing in theaters nationwide and in Tuscaloosa at the Cobb Hollywood 16 this week, Drive with Ryan Gosling, Carey Mulligan, and Albert Brooks, Straw Dogs, a remake of the Sam Peckinpah film, 
I don't know how she does it with Sarah Jessica Parker and the Lion King in 3D. And the film is actually also playing in 2D. So I, I think this won the weekend. It won with wise. 30 plus million dollars. My goodness. Actually, so the Lion King still alive and well. My goodness. <laughs> the Bama Art House film series will continue on Tuesday with Terry starring John C. Riley at 7.30 p.m. As always, you can email any of your feedback to aspectradioshow at gmail.com. Find us at twitter.com slash aspectradio or facebook.com slash aspectradio. You can download this and other episodes of the show on our blog at aspectradio.tumblr.com, and we'll also post the podcast on Twitter and Facebook. And check us out on al.com. You can read Corey's DVD column in Tusk Magazine every Friday in the Tuscaloosa News. His fall movie preview appeared in the last issue, and you can find that linked on our Facebook page and blog. Be sure to visit FilmNerds.com where you'll find our own fall movie preview and the first installment of our new series, The Shelf of Shame, written by Ben Stark, in which we, the film nerds, humiliate ourselves and dash our credibility by sharing what we consider our top five most shameful omissions as moviegoers. Classic films we know that we should have seen but just haven't. And on a completely unrelated note, I will be watching The Sound of Music, Lawrence of Arabia, and Ben-Hur over the next week. Well, we'd once again like to thank our friends Matt Scalici and Gilbert Cruz for joining us today. You can find Matt on FilmNerds.com and Gilbert at Time.com. Many thanks again to our producer Andrew Richardson for his technical prowess and unadulterated passion for putting together this show. Until next week, I am Ben Flanagan. And I'm Corey Kraft. This is Aspect Radio. Thanks for listening. My calculations are correct. When this baby hits 88 miles per hour, you're going to see some serious sh- Check, check, check. Okay, I think we're, we're good, to go. good to go. Yeah. Check, check, check. Okay. Here we are on Aspect Radio. This is Wolfman Jack. Wolfman Jack. Ow! <coughs> All right. From the University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa, welcome to Aspect Radio. Oh, too loud. Too loud. Damn it. <laughs>